you want to get to the heart of authentic Christianity, what's the genuine article? Amidst all of the trappings and all of the distortions and, and all of the different ways that it has been misused, go to the parables. The parables have a way of, of casting a bright new light on the heart of the faith. And we've been doing that now for several months, and we have a few more weeks of it. This morning, we're going to journey through one of the parables that you find in the Gospel of Luke. And I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your devices or in your print Bible to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at the parable of the two debtors. Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. As with most of the parables, it's situated in a real-life situation. It arises in the midst of a real-life issue. And so we're going to read the issue first, and then we'll read the parable that Jesus uses in order to illustrate his point. Luke seven thirty-six to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who she is, this one who's touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet, and therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pause for a minute in prayer. God, we pray now that you would be just as present in this room as you were in that room long ago. That the words that you spoke in that room would come to life here. That through your spirit, the same Spirit that allowed those words to be written and preserved in the pages of Scripture, through your Spirit, those words would become alive, would challenge us in our lives, 
in our heads and in our hearts, in our understanding and in our devotion. God, come be present with us now, we pray. Amen. One of the things I hope you've learned by now as we've made our way through the parables is that whenever Jesus says, I have something to tell you, you should probably duck and run. It's like lobbing a spiritual grenade out into an audience, and it it usually goes off with the same kind of percussive, emotional, and intellectual and spiritual force. Well, here's Jesus. He's been invited to the home of one of the prominent religious leaders, a Pharisee, a man named Simon. You remember, the Pharisees as a group, these were the, the wealthy, the religious elite, the leaders of the day. And Jesus was probably more critical of their leadership than he was of anything else. As a result, most of the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with him. But not Simon. Simon, at least, held out this little thread of interest. There was an openness to him that you don't see in most of the other Pharisees. Curiosity. Uh, spiritual interest. And so he invites Jesus into his home. Now, Jesus is there. You need to picture this scene. He's reclining at the table because people didn't sit at a table the way we sit at a table with, with chairs and cutlery arranged just so to confuse of us who don't know what to do when there's more than one fork. And people, people reclined on pillows They leaned on one elbow, usually their left, and they ate with their right hand and their feet. They weren't tucked underneath a table. They were propped up on pillows. It's kind of like, well, it's kind of like the way some of you are going to watch the Raptors game tonight, all, all spread out on the couch like that. But the point is, your whole body is exposed. And so imagine this scene, Jesus reclining at table, eating, A woman approaches, and the scripture says he comes to her from behind. And she lets down her hair. And as she's weeping, the tears fall on his exposed feet. And she begins to wipe them with her hair. Now, what do we know about this woman? We know very little. We know that there is this one descriptive phrase that says she lived a sinful life. A woman of, I guess we'd say a woman of ill repute. She made her living as women often had to in that society, if they were deeply marginalized, if they had no family to claim them or support them or own them, she made her living by selling her body. Simon immediately says, when this begins to happen, and says, this guy Jesus, he says that, well, he claims that there is something divine about him. But if he really were divine, he would know who this woman is, what kind of woman she is. She's not good society. And he ought to have nothing to do with her. And this is where Jesus says, I have a story to tell you. Look out. (laughs) Here it comes. The story is about two debtors. Both of them own a lender money. In one case, the debt is about 500 denarii, roughly a year's wage. Now, without making you too vulnerable, think about what a year's wage is. How many of you have ever been in a position in your life when you have owed Roughly a year's wage. Mortgage holders. Yeah. Yeah. 50 denarii, about a month's wage. How many of you have been in a position where you've owed roughly the equivalent of a month's wage? The point is, both of them owed the lender. Neither of them could pay. Now, in Jesus' day, 
when you owed a lender, you didn't owe an institution or a bank. You owed a person. And there was no provision for insolvency. There was no bankruptcy court. There was no legislation protecting those who, who were deeply in debt. If you owed a lender, you couldn't pay your debts. You went to prison. Everything that you owned was confiscated, and you went to prison. Most of the people in the day of Jesus who worked as slaves, worked as slaves because they were unable to pay back their debts. They lived either physically in prison or in the imprisonment of bondage of slavery. Now Jesus says about these two debtors, which of them would love the lender more? Simon thinks about it and says, I suppose the one who owed more would love the lender more if the debts were forgiven. And this is where you have to be careful when Jesus says, I have something to tell you. So he turns around, he says, Simon, you and this woman, you're like the two debtors. Only she has loved me more. She has embraced me. She hasn't stopped loving me from the moment that she entered the room. And you have not. You see the contrast. And, and parables are often about contrast. You have these two people. You have the woman and you have Simon. Both of them want to meet Jesus. Both of them are in the presence of Jesus. Both listen to his teaching. One is being completely transformed. She experiences this eruption of of love and gratitude, and her life is changed. But the other one is detached and cold. One of them sent away feeling maybe a little bit miffed, certainly confused. The other way goes away completely transformed. What's the difference? What's the difference? I think that's an important question, isn't it? It's important because everybody in this room, I mean, don't, don't we like to believe that we are here in the presence of Jesus? You're not just here in my presence or Pastor Sheldon's, Pastor Nathan, the worship team. I mean, I hope that's not why you came. If you came, you're going to be disappointed, even though I did wear a suit today. Yeah. Do you know why? <laughs> it was early this morning. I didn't want to iron the, the arms. <laughs> so just the front panel. But, I mean, you... Hopefully you didn't come just to be in our presence. You came because you're seeking the presence of God here. And God, we believe, is fully present here. And everybody will go away from the presence of God, either feeling detached and unaffected like Simon, confused, maybe even a little upset about the whole thing, or transformed. Which are you? Simon or or the woman? And how do you explain the difference? So what I'd like to do for the next few minutes, we're going we're gonna to play doctor, a li- not that kind of doctor, but we're, we're, we're going to do diagnosis. We're going to look at a series of symptoms, three of them. Try and ferret out the underlying condition and then make a diagnosis. So I'm going to describe three different symptoms that contrast these two people. Basically, though, they're all variations of the same thing. Here's the first. When you see Simon coming to Jesus, you see he comes in this very detached way. The woman, she comes with her whole being. Can you imagine how Simon felt? What his reaction is when Jesus said, Simon, why didn't you greet me with a kiss? Why didn't you hug me when I arrived? Why didn't you weep over me when I came in? And you can imagine Simon saying, you're kidding, right? You're in my house. 
We're having a polite, courteous, respectful conversation. You don't expect that kind of drama from me. The first inference, the first symptom, as you contrast Simon and the woman, is that where Simon is guarded, doesn't have his whole self there, she is all in. You just you can feel it, can't you? The emotion of the scene moved right to the depths. Not only does she hear the words of Jesus, but there's tears. And there's a conscious choice. And there's a tangible response. The whole person is involved. Let's come at it another way, another symptom, if you'd like. Another way of seeing the difference between the two. And this is important because, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, a Christian is somebody who's interested in Jesus, who studies the words of Jesus, who, who, who tries to, to understand the life of Jesus. Both of these people are like that. Both the man and the woman are there. They're listening to Jesus. They both show their interest. Both are saying, I, I want you in some place, in some way in my life. In a sense, they're both in church. They're both in church. They're both sitting there. They both say they have some room for Jesus, but that's not where the real difference is. Here you have Simon, and it, it's almost like, well, it's almost like this is an interview, right? And he's in control of the interview. Not so with the woman. She gives up control. Simon's approaching Jesus the, may, the way that many of us want to. Uh, Jesus, I'd, I've been looking into you. You do miracles. Check. That's impressive. I've heard your teaching. It's pretty good. I, I, I like the sermons. They're not too long, unlike that MCBC guy. Uh, I, I, I like some of the songs that they sing about you. They're catchy. Right now, I'm trying to figure out how much of you to let into my life. In other words, he's in control. Jesus is the applicant. You've been in interviews like that, maybe? Those kind of awkward interviews, no real commitment. We're just doing that dance, trying to figure out whether I want you and you want me. We're afraid to, to really commit to each other. You can't approach Jesus that way. I mean, you can, but, but the results are never effective. Jesus is not just like a little booth at Costco giving out samples. So I'll just take a nibble and I'll decide later. You don't interview him for the job of Lord and Savior. The job is already his. The response, it's not product research, is it? It's commitment. The difference between the Pharisee and the woman is commitment. Let me toss out a little definition. This is on the back page of your bulletin in the notes. What is commitment? Commitment is putting your weight on something to the point of vulnerability. Commitment is putting your weight on something to the point of vulnerability. Some of the best analogies I can think of are in sports. You know that scene in, on the soccer pitch, football, for the Europeans? The penalty kick is there, and, and the runner is going up. Just before they strike the ball, the ball, the goalie has to decide. If the goalie waits until the moment that the ball is struck, they have waited too long. And so what do they do? They put their weight one way or the other, and they launch. Sometimes they guess right, and the results are spectacular. Sometimes they guess wrong, and, and it looks foolish. Right? That's commitment. It's putting your weight on something to the point of vulnerability. There probably is nothing more vulnerable than a goalie standing there, a goalkeeper, in the presence of 70,000 screaming fans launching off in the wrong direction. But no vulnerability, no commitment. 
no commitment, no relationship. It's true everywhere. It's true in sports. It's, it's especially true in life. There is no commitment without vulnerability. Without commitment, you lose. You want to know someone? Really know them? You have to open up. You have to be personally involved. And that means being vulnerable. And here's the danger. As soon as you open up in that way, they have something on you. And they can use it. And they can twist it. As soon as you open up your innermost self, they can use it against you. And a lot of you have been in that position, have you not? You opened up and then you felt used and you were hurt. And you don't want to do it anymore. I'm not making myself vulnerable, not in that way anymore. And so we stay detached. We interview people. We keep our options open. We, we don't commit. We don't put the weight of our whole self in anymore. You can't do that in sports. Not without losing the game. You can't do it in life. Not without sacrificing real relationships. How much more true is it that if you want to have the ultimate relationship with the ultimate person, there has to be an ultimate level of commitment. You have to put the weight of your whole self in. The woman does it. Simon will not. How does she do it? She does it in in an amazing way. She takes an alabaster flask filled with perfume. Most likely it was a necklace. It was what women of her trade wore. It was part of the allure. It was, it was part of the sensuality. Not only the aroma coming, coming off of a, uh, of a person, but the use of that in the application of her trade. For her to take that off and pour it out on him. You see what's going on? She was taking the primary tool of her trade and pouring it out at his feet. It's a radical new direction for her. I have a better use now for this. She's changing her life. Sometimes, you know, I think that people want to get just enough Jesus into their life to give them a bit of peace, maybe inspiration. Or they want to have it boxed in just in a narrow little window of time. Their life really hits the skids. They, they need him now. And they'll make the most outrageous promises for those twin gifts of peace and inspiration. But then when life gets back on track again, Jesus gets back on the shelf. There's no way to relate to Jesus in an authentic, life-transforming way without being radically vulnerable. And that means you have to invite him into every place. Master not just of your Sundays, but of your weekdays, of your job, of your ethics, of your behavior, of your money and your relationships and your sexuality, of all of it. There is no way to stay in control and genuinely relate to Jesus. And maybe if you carried the metaphor a little bit further, Would it be fair to say that that everybody in this room, you and I both, we have a little flask of something around our neck that holds the things that are most important to us. We're going to pour that out at somebody's feet, even if it's only our own. 
Who gets your heart? I mean, who is it that you live for utterly and entirely? Because the difference between authentic Christianity and mere religion is not, well, the Christian is moral and the non-Christian is immoral. No, Simon was the moral one in this story. And the difference is not that Christians are interested in Jesus and study Jesus and talk about Jesus. They both do that. The difference is that she comes with all of her being and she is willing to address him in terms of personal commitment. She gives up control. There's one last way to put it. One more symptom if you'd like. You get the sense as you read the story, the narrative, that, that Simon insists on treating Jesus like all the other guests in the house. Whereas the woman gives him absolute preeminence. I mean, either he is who he says he is. Son of God, creator, redeemer. And he's not like anyone else. So you dare not treat him like anybody else. Or else you make him out to be a liar or a phony, a fraud. Somebody dangerously ill, but, but certainly just not like everybody else. When the woman takes that flask off of her neck, it's probably the most valuable thing that she owns. It's her way of saying, Jesus, you are not just one more thing in my life, sitting up there on the shelf alongside everything else. You are more important than anything to me. You're the most valuable thing. And maybe Simon, and boy, he's in good company here. A lot of people come at it this way. They say, Jesus, listen, I, I got a bunch of things on the go but I'm going to try and squeeze you in. Just one more thing. Look, again, the the difference between authentic Christ following and just a lot of religious nonsense is that in religion, you use Jesus to help you get other things. In Christianity, you say, you are the everything that I want. I mean, after all, isn't religion, all of its rituals and all of its trappings, just about a way of trying to ply the gods into getting what we want? Whether it's rain or or fertility or finances. When you say, why should I serve God if he's not given me this or that? What you're really saying is that this or that is God. That's the thing I'm living for. In other words, if I can't have God and this or that, I don't want either. Contrast that with the woman. It says, I I refuse, Lord. I refuse to see anything as more important than you. I'm going to pour out everything in my life at your feet. If I have you, I have everything that I need. That's the difference between authentic Christianity and just mere religion. The last couple of minutes, I just want to think with you about what causes the difference? I mean, if those are the symptoms, the contrast between the two women, what are the causes? If you look underneath the surface. The first thing that this parable, the parable of the debtors, shows us is something remarkable about, about the snares of the human soul, about sin, if you like. Jesus in the parable makes himself the lender, doesn't he? And he makes both the man and the woman the debtors. The woman is the 500 denarii debtor. The man is the 50 denarii debtor. What's the difference between the 50 and the 500? 
carry the one. It's a tenfold increase, right? And so some people have read this on the surface and they think it means that the woman needed Jesus more because she was a much bigger sinner than the man. Worse sinner, more in need of salvation. Dig a little bit deeper. Because I actually think Jesus is saying something much more dramatic. Remember, this is like a grenade. The point is, and he says it very clearly, neither one of them could make good on their debt. Neither one of them had a cent with which to repay. That meant that legally they're in exactly the same position. The thrust, the genius of the illustration of the parable is that even though the debt in one sense seems greater for one than the other, they're both in exactly the same boat. If they can't pay, they lose everything and they go to prison. I mean, what Jesus is saying is astonishing. It's a bombshell. He's saying to the Pharisee, this morally scrupulous person, He's saying to this person who understands the Bible and is religious and all that stuff, you're in the same position as she is. Think of it this way. Maybe it's a little bit grisly, but I want you to imagine two different murder scenes. I told you it was grisly, right? In the first, they come across a body stretched out on the ground, a syringe filled with poison still sticking out of the neck. In the second... They come across just the bloody pulp of a body that had been riddled with hundreds of machine gun bullets. Here's the question. Which one is more dead? Now granted, maybe one is more pretty dead and one is more ugly dead, but they're both dead. They're both in the same position. What Jesus really is getting at is root causes, the malady that explains the the symptoms, the difference in the end between him and her, the difference between the 500 and the 50 is not that she needs salvation more, but that she realizes that she needs salvation more. Let me say that again. The difference between her and him is not that she needs salvation more, but that she realized more that she needs salvation. The real reason her life is transformed and his is not, she is honest about the state of her own heart. She knows the state of her soul. She knows what sin is. She knows what it's done. Friends, if you don't understand this, you've not really understood the gospel. There's probably a hundred different ways to define sin. For just a minute, take this definition. It's also in your notes, I think. Sin is the desire to live independent of God. Sin is the desire to live independently of Him, to be your own master, not to have to depend on Him for anything that really matters. If you don't see the depths of your own soul, if you can't feel the weight of what's there, the good and the perilously bad, then you're not going to hear the promise that God will forgive you. And that forgiveness is not going to transform you. You don't like the idea of depending on anyone's forgiveness. You can be good enough. You ought to be good enough, right? That too, the stubborn desire to live independent of God, not to seek 
or savor the gift of forgiveness, that too is the effect of sin. Lastly then, the the final thing that, that maybe she sees that he does not, and not only does she see her need for forgiveness, I think she must have realized its cost. And he does not. Think again about the parable, the analogy of the lender. How is it that the lender forgives a debt? There's only one way to forgive a debt, isn't there? You eat the cost yourself. In a sense, you don't forgive the debt. The debt doesn't disappear. You transfer it. Somebody still has to pay. Somebody. Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? I mean, if you don't at some level see the extravagance, the costliness of forgiveness, you're not going to be amazed and thrilled by the grace of God. That's what's happening in the heart of this woman. She's amazed. She's changed. She's astonished. Simon and, and some of us out there who are like Simon, maybe we, we, we want to be detached about it. Maybe we're interested in Jesus, but we're not going to put our whole weight in. And the reason we keep going away empty Sunday after Sunday, the reason our lives have never been fully changed, is that we still think of sin merely as the failure to obey some set of rules. Instead of seeing that underneath it all, we're trying to live our lives walled off from God. Let's wrap it up, both with the parable and with the story that surrounds it. Let's wrap it up in this way. One of the, one of the powerful ways of reading Scripture is by placing yourself in the story. Which character will you inhabit? Some of you feel like you're Simon. I hope you see it if that's the case. The real difference between Simon and the woman? The woman has this personal, dramatic, life-changing relationship with God. Simon had, well, he just kind of had an academic one. Simon says his prayers. The woman prays. Simon believes maybe intellectually, but the woman worships. The woman lays down everything she has at his feet, makes herself vulnerable, places him in control of her life. She has a personal relationship. He has a detached, cold, intellectual one. Which, which do you have? And let me say this, friends. If you think that this parable and, and most of the parables are directed primarily at people who have never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, let me encourage you to look again. There's a sense in which being a Christian, you're still going to have your Simon days And you're going to have your woman days. And you know how easy it is to slide back into patterns of of demandingness and independence and isolation and, and forgetting that sin really is the desire to live without God. You slip back into those Simon patterns. The table of the Lord is spread before us this morning. A better moment to recalibrate your life, to rejoice again in the grace of God. It's not until you see just how much you've been forgiven 
that you'll be able to love. And there is no life without love. And there is no love, ultimately, without a sense of God's presence. How real is that for you? How will you come to the table? Like Simon? Like the woman? encourage you to take everything that you have off your neck and put it at his feet. He will not disappoint. Let me pray with you. Father, as we pray, we ask that you would show us, everyone here, show us what it means to to recognize the gospel. To respond with wholehearted commitment. Father, there may be people here this morning who have never really got their hearts and their heads around it. Maybe their relationship with you feels cold and distant. Lord, could this be the moment for them Would you move them across the line to commitment? Or at least move them today to decide that they're going to discover what it really means to be a follower of Christ. Lord, we also want to acknowledge in prayer that there may be some of us who are here this morning who aren't experiencing that wholehearted, transforming joy of the gospel. And show us how easy it is to fall back into those patterns of independence and self-righteousness. No longer lean on you for your grace. How easy it is for us to become self-important and demanding. Help us to break it now. To break it here. To break it at the table. We're in humility with our whole self seeking transformation that only comes from you. We come now to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.